coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. These are very difficult times. I would encourage people to, to hang on. We're moving to a point now where we're not giving a million doses a day. We're giving an excess of one and a half million doses of vaccine a day. But with multiple variants of the coronavirus now circulating, will the current vaccines remain effective? When you see these variants, you begin to understand that this is a desperate race between vaccine and virus, between time and opportunity, and we dare not lose that opportunity. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We are recording this podcast on Monday, February the 1st, 2021 to 121. Can you believe it's February already? It's challenging to keep up with the changing news about COVID-19, virus variants, and vaccine efforts, but we do our best to keep you updated weekly on Q&A. Well, with us today to discuss all things COVID-19 is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist, vaccine expert, and infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here again, Greg. My pleasure. Good to see you for our little weekly meetup. Can you believe that it's February? Oh, I know. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're celebrating in quotes, uh, you know, over a year of this. But good news for you, Helena. I heard you got your second dose of vaccine. I did. I did get it. And I wore red today to celebrate uh, February, not only Valentine's Day, but also National Heart Month. Uh, it'll be National Heart Day, I think, on Friday, yeah. February 5th. So in case I don't see you before that, yeah, lots well, of good things to celebrate. Thank you. I get my second dose Wednesday, so I'm excited. Wonderful. I'm so excited for you. <clears throat> All right, Greg, let's jump right in. And could you give us an update on COVID uh, numbers? Are we seeing a decline in infections yet in the United States, perhaps related to people getting vaccinated? Yeah, you know, we definitely are. And uh, as this whole year has been, we, we kind of simultaneously get some good news and at the same time, some not so good news. So the good news is that numbers have definitely fallen. In fact, I checked this morning, there, are, there were less than 110,000 new cases. Now that doesn't sound like good news, but remember we were up in uh, 200 to sometimes touching on 300,000 new cases a day. So this is good news. There were uh, 1,700 deaths yesterday. Um, and there are less than 100,000 people in the hospital around the U.S. with COVID. So all of this is good news. We've given in the U.S. over 30 million doses of COVID wow. vaccine. And just as you're uh, proposing, Helena, I think that has had an effect. I think people are getting the message that the control of this pandemic is in our hands by wearing masks and distancing. I think we're doing far better as of last, is it last night or tonight? I think it's tonight. Uh, mask mandates go into effect for uh, any kind of interstate travel or public transportation. I think that's a good thing. Unfortunately, we have a, a small but significant fraction of the population who just you know doesn't understand that yet uh, and who has not been particularly cooperative with that. The, the bad news, if you will, are these variants that are just starting to pop up in uh, over 30 countries now, including the U.S., and those are of real concern. Wow, it's good to hear you bringing us some good news today. 30 million sounds like a lot of doses, but there sure are a lot to go, and the logistical yes. um, sort of nightmare of this has been keen to all of us in the news. 
But you have to temper that with some news about the virus variants. And I know there's been talk about a UK variant, Brazilian, South African. What can you tell us about these? Uh, what do we yeah. know now, Greg? Yeah, you know, if I, if I sort of had to rank them, I, I would say the UK variant, while serious because of increased transmissibility and a slightly increased death rate, kind of pales in comparison to the South African and Brazilian uh, variant. And in fact, you know, the first of those variants was actually identified in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So, you know, it just tells you that it can occur anywhere, anytime. These are so transmissible. Uh, the concern about them is the reduction, especially with the two new vaccines that we got the results of over the uh, Friday, I guess it was, um, the reduction in vaccine efficacy against those variants. Greg, so we have all three variants in the United States now? Yes. May I ask you a question about how variants occur? Yeah. Um, is it because someone in Minneapolis and someone in Brazil have been in contact or is the mutation happening similarly, but in different countries? No, it's, it all originates from kind of one source and then spreads. Um, and yet these three variants <clears throat> arose independent of one another. The, the way to think of it is if I gave you a densely written uh, one page of text material, and I said, copy that page over and over and over again, you'd begin to make errors, right? You'd leave a letter out, add one, misspell a word, whatever it would be. This, that's similar to what happens with the virus. The more times it copies itself, that is the more times it infects a human and then makes copy after copy, infects the next human and goes on through million, hundreds of millions of people, you begin to introduce errors into the viral genetic code. And that's what's happened here. And unfortunately, and characteristic of these variants is that they have three uh, very bad mutations in what's called the receptor binding domain. That's just a fancy word for the piece of that S protein that locks in to that receptor. So it's the worst possible place for that mutation to occur in terms of humans. Good for the virus because it causes more infection and a slightly increased uh, death rate. I liked your analogy about the <laughs> written word. I think that was uh, very relatable. Yeah. Greg, there's so much concern about whether the vaccine is going to be potent against these variants. What do we know about that right now? Yeah, we have some information, but of course, never as much as, as we want. The um, Novavax completed their trial and we got the initial interim results just at the end of this past week. And the vaccine efficacy was 90%. So that's, that's very good. The problem is when you look at its efficacy against the UK variant, slightly decreased, about 85%. If you look at its uh, efficacy against the South African strain, so the part of the trial that was carried out in South Africa, where they documented that over 95% of the infections were with this variant, it was 49%. So that's worrisome. At the same time, we got the Johnson & Johnson study results, and I'll just refer to them here. It was 66% against moderate to severe disease, about 72% efficacy 
in the part of the trial that was carried out here in the US, 66% effective in South America, but only 57% in South Africa, again, where there was a high prevalence of this. Now, well, that, that sure doesn't sound good. No, right, you know, compared that's, that's, to Moderna and Pfizer. What do you that's make kind of, that? of discouraging news? But there's some there's some positive parts about that, and let me let me try to explain that. When we look at severe disease or death, it was nearly a hundred percent effective. So it might not prevent against infection, but does much better against death or severe disease. That's one thing. The other uh, part that I think notable for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is it's one dose. Um, so they got those kind of results after one dose. And, and that particular vaccine can be stored at refrigerator temperature for about uh, three months. So, you know, that may turn out to be a vaccine that ultimately we say, you know, that's a perfect vaccine for younger people where the risk of death is so much lower compared to older people or in areas of the world where having ultra cold freezers is not practical, but where we can have refrigeration. The other thing is that they have now embarked on a two dose study. So they're gonna enroll, I think it's another 30,000 people. And this one's interesting because the two doses will be two months apart. So okay. that's, that's a very interesting change compared to the schedules we've been seeing with these vaccines. Well, it sounds like a, a lot of pros versus cons. So very interesting and, and much easier to understand than when you just read yes. uh, blanket numbers in the press. So that does make uh, those receiving Johnson & Johnson, I'm certain, feel much better. Can the you other, remind the other, the, the other aspect, sorry, Helena, the other, the other aspect that I think is important about this is remember that the vaccines that you, know, you and I have gotten, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine, those have not been tested against those variants. In the test tube, they're about 10 to 60 fold less effective in neutralizing the virus. So just to put it into context, what we're reading about uh, Johnson & Johnson and Novavax is because they happen to test their vaccines during the time of these variants. The other two were not tested during that time. So we only know how they react in the test tube, not in real life. Nonetheless, clearly they're effective. And if I could, you know, pour vaccine over the globe to protect everybody, that would work. <laughs> interesting. That is really interesting data. Um, can you remind us again how the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is different than the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines? Oh, really good question. And I, I neglected to say something about that. Moderna and Pfizer are mRNA vaccines, whereas the Johnson & Johnson is the first of the adenovirus vectored vaccines. Again, just kind of a fancy word saying, we take a common cold virus called the uh, adenovirus, and we insert the gene for that spike protein into the virus. It doesn't replicate but we inject it, gets into our body, is presented, presents that S protein to our immune cells, and it acts just like the other vaccines in producing immunity. So just a different way of showing our body that S protein. Oh, that's very interesting. And Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has yet been approved for emergency use authorization in the United States. Will it be? 
Yeah, you are correct. Um, uh, we expect that sometime in the next week or two, that will go to the FDA and they'll schedule one of the FDA advisory uh, meetings. I'll be at that meeting. Um, I do expect that it will be approved. We need as many vaccines as possible. Truly, when you see these variants, you begin to understand that this is a desperate race between vaccine and virus, between time and opportunity. And we dare not lose that opportunity. Boy, just listening to you, it is really hard for, you know, someone who isn't a specialist in this to weigh the pros and cons. Would you still say that it is true that individuals should accept the vaccine that is offered to them without being selective? Not that we have the ability to be selective. It oh, oh ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, as vaccinologists, we're, we're fond of saying the best vaccine to get is the one that's offered to you. It would be really hard for me. I don't think I could in any fairness say this one's better than that one. They've been tested under different conditions. They each have their unique set of benefits, but what's in common with all of these is that they are virtually all 100% effective in preventing death. That's the big key here and preventing severe disease, which leads to complications. Yeah, we care about mild disease. We care about asymptomatic transmission, but those are lower on the priority list in in the context of this awful pandemic that we're in the midst of. I have a curiosity question, Greg. When you look out into the future, when COVID-19 is controlled and um, the world has been vaccinated, do you think that we will continue to have multiple vaccines and multiple vaccine types as examples for future um, pandemics if they should occur? Or will we have multiple choices? Yeah, I I think we'll have much more of a, what I would call a personalized or individualized approach. For example, um, there may be certain types of vaccines that are better for children, uh, different ones better for young adults, yet different ones for elderly adults. That's just like what we do with influenza. We have some seven different vaccines available in the US for influenza, which is nice because as a clinician, I can choose exactly the right one for you and your circumstances. And I think we'll see that. The other thing that I think is another, if you will, silver lining in this dark cloud of a pandemic is that we're gonna see more multivalent vaccines. In other words, uh, I would bet virtually anything that we will in the near future develop a, a coronavirus vaccine against multiple types of coronavirus, including the one that causes the common cold, and very likely combine that with the influenza vaccine. So we do that with kids. Kids get multivalent vaccines. I think we're going to start seeing that in adults. And wouldn't that be convenient if we could combine them together? That would be great. Greg, I've seen something uh, in the news of interest, and it also was of great deal of interest Mm -hmm. to our Mayo Clinic employees when I did a Q&A with some other um, vaccine specialists uh, last week. There were, there's been talk in the news about you should not use Tylenol or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which should include medications like ibuprofen or Advil or Motrin. Uh, and you should not take those before you get your vaccine, um, but you can take it after. 
if you have uh, side effects. Would you explain that to us? Yeah, uh, in fact, I'm writing an editorial about this um, because so many people need to take those. This is particularly true for our patients who have migraine or other headache disorders. So where this comes from is some, some data that's uneven showing that in infants and young children who get their first dose of vaccine, that it, that it can lower the immune response to it. It doesn't have that effect on their second or booster doses. In adults, it's been very uneven in terms of data. Does it lower it or does it not lower it? So I would say it's not clear. So, you know, in an ideal world, given that situation, we would say, if you can avoid taking Tylenol or a non-steroidal right before your COVID vaccine, do so, try to delay it. Once you've gotten the shot, if you had any side effects, go ahead and use Tylenol or non-steroidals. For our patients that have migraine and other headache disorders or a variety of reasons why they may have to take it, I would say, go ahead and take it. It is better than suffering with a migraine headache. It's better than having to go in and get IV treatment as is often the case. So, you know, like anything, you're trading off, you know, risks and, and benefits. And in that particular case, uh, and I've got many patients that are fitting into that category, I tell them, go ahead and use that. You know, that's better than an ER visit and having to, you know, get treated for your migraine that way. And what we suspect is that these vaccines are so immunogenic. And let me just give an example that's kind of simplistic. I'm making up the numbers, but the concept is the same. The, let's say that you need an antibody level of 100. Again, I'm just making that level up. These vaccines are inducing levels of 800 or 1,000. So what if they're lowered to 700? That has no clinical detriment at all. And yet the benefit, the therapeutic benefit for somebody taking a Tylenol or a non-steroidal when they need it is so great that that's an easy trade-off. I think what I'm having trouble understanding, Greg, is the timing. So I took some Tylenol yesterday for a headache, had my vaccine today. Yeah. And what I cannot understand is why would it be worse to take the Tylenol before you had the vaccine than afterward when you are trying to mount the immune response? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that we have three separate arms to our immune system. The one that is immediate is called the innate system, followed by the adaptive, followed by the cellular. And when you take Tylenol or non-steroidals, we suspect what's happening is that you're interfering with that immediate immune response, the one that releases the things that make us feel the side effects. They release chemicals called chemokines and cytokines. Those called, cause swelling, redness, uh, fatigue, maybe a low-grade fever-like feeling. And we're interfering with that. And those, those, while they're side effects we don't like, they actually boost our immune response. So that's the nature of how that happens. Very interesting. Well, Greg, now at Mayo Clinic, we have not finished uh, vaccinating all of our employees because we have moved on and there's been some regrouping done and priority placed on um, particularly individuals who are 80 years and yeah. older. 
in receiving vaccines. I suspect that it's different. It's obviously different in different states, what age has been chosen. But could you tell me why is it so important that we get that group vaccinated before we continue with uh, younger individuals out working in the community? Yeah, you know, what you're fundamentally doing is you're saying, you know, we have a pie this big of people who are at risk, but we only have this sliver of the pie in terms of numbers of doses. So you start with the people that are at highest risk and you move your way down. So appropriately, those were the front facing healthcare workers, right? Those of us that are seeing patients that are involved in taking care of patients, you gotta protect them. At the same time then this, this group of people over age 80 are at singularly the highest risk of dying or having a significant complication. A vaccine to somebody like that could mean the difference between life or death, between continuing to live independently or now requiring you know, significant care in a, in a care facility. And that, that just absorbs a tremendous amount of medical personnel, material, equipment, et cetera, to care for those individuals. So, the whole field of vaccinology is based on the idea of preventing morbidity and mortality. So this is appropriate in my mind to protect those very highest risk people and begin marching down. And that's happening. In fact, um, uh, Pfizer is, has now completed enrollment into their 12 to 16 year old vaccine trial. So as we get more and more vaccine supply, we're gonna see this very rapidly expand to include more and more people. But at the current time, you've gotta protect the people at highest risk first. Really difficult. I don't envy those whose job it is to triage and help come up with those determinations. No. Because when you're saying yes to someone right now, you're saying no to someone else. And obviously, you know, that's a really difficult situation to be in, but I think that it's obvious that a lot of care is going into this. And, you know, again, one thing I always encourage people with is, you know, this isn't some stealthy thing over which we have no control. You cannot get infected. You simply cannot get infected with this virus unless you breathe it in. So I hope that'll be an encouragement to people. So last week, Greg, there's a question that I wanted to ask you. I didn't because we were visiting with your lovely daughter and that was a great podcast. If, want, if uh, individuals want to watch, it was really enjoyable. But Merck has um, exited the vaccine uh, competition. And could you tell us why? Yeah, uh, we don't have the data yet to show what the efficacy was, but in their first or initial studies, the two different vaccine candidates they had, these were live viral approaches did not work well. I don't think there were any safety issues. It was that they didn't feel the efficacy was high enough. And so, you know, I, I applaud them for making that data available, first of all. And second of all, for saying, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pivot to putting our resources into the development of therapeutic drugs against this virus. And that's exactly what they've done. That sounds like a wonderful trade-off. Yeah. Good yeah. use of resources. Yeah. Say, Greg, I told you earlier why I wore my red today. However, Super Bowl is coming up, and my husband probably would have said I should have worn green and gold to celebrate yeah. his Packers, even though they're not <laughs> going to be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that was a, a difficult moment in our home, but uh, yeah. nonetheless. 
There have been some studies in the NFL about COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about those and what have they learned? Yeah, you know, this is interesting because some of the lessons learned uh, at, at the NFL are some of the same lessons that have been learned in terms of schools and children. And that is, if you take very intensive, deliberate measures and you enforce them, they work. Now, we learned something with the NFL in particular because our sense was if you had your risk of getting infected, if you were exposed to somebody and it was under 15 minutes of exposure would be very, very low. Whereas over 15 minutes combined total of exposure would be a higher risk. That kind of got blown apart by the NFL study because they had a number of infections in people who had cumulative exposures under 15 minutes. In fact, some of them just being in a room together <clears throat> and taking their mask off to eat or a small group meeting was enough to cause infection. So the point is that where they were not seeing infections is if you wore a mask and you kept your, your appropriate distance. That turns out to be very, very effective. And we've seen this in schools, hospitals, NFL teams, Major League Baseball. I mean, the list goes on and on. How much more evidence do we need that masking and distancing works well? It's adherence to that that is causing the problem. And so I applaud the NFL for the very intensive measures that they took and, the, and, and they worked with CDC to publish these data to tell other uh, people and organizations that, yeah, you can control this if you do it right. It's a great reminder too, that we need to be careful in break rooms, in restaurants, places where we might um, come together without a mask on. Early on, Mayo Clinic noted that we were having more outbreaks amongst individuals who, who were together, perhaps yes. in the cafeteria setting. Um, without masks on or in break rooms, things like that. So a very concerted effort was made uh, to work on that and it's been quite successful. You know, one of, one of the things characteristic of Mayo Clinic, and you know, I know a lot of places might, might claim this, but Mayo has lived it. And that is the idea of being a learning organization. So while it can sometimes be disruptive to change policies over time, those changes have come about based on what we've learned. So in a new situation, like with this virus, we've learned a lot. And I, I know for uh, my, my research group at Mayo, you know, we've taken the distancing, the mask wearing very seriously. We put in place policies if somebody traveled, uh, they're, they're, they work in an isolation room until they have a negative test and we know they don't you know, provide a risk to others. So Mayo has done a lot of learning, a lot of researching, and that's benefited not only us, but the world as we share those results. Greg, I've had an incredible privilege today and now received two vaccines. Do I still need to wear a mask? So, so Alina, uh, this is a really common question I get. Uh, friends call me, email me about this all the time because we want to have a normal life and we will again. But right now, there are three reasons to continue to wearing a mask after you have gotten both doses of vaccine. Number one, while the vaccine reduces, it does not eliminate the risk of you being exposed, having no disease, but transmitting that virus to somebody else, what's called asymptomatic transmission. 
Number two, remember that even the best of these vaccines is only about 90, 95% effective, meaning you might have a one in 10, one in 20 chance of being exposed and still getting disease. So it's protecting you. And the third reason is really an important reason, revolves around what we talked about earlier, these variants and the new variants to come. You might be protected against death, but your protection against disease might only be about 50%. If that's true, then we still want to wear masks to prevent the spread of those variants, which would then mutate further as they cause more and more infections. So three good reasons to continue to mask even after getting two doses of vaccine. Well, that's three reasons good enough for me. I will keep my mask on. <laughs> Any last words you'd like to share with us this day, today? You know, I think again, um, these are very difficult times. I would encourage people to, to hang on. Um, you know, we're moving to a point now where we're not giving a million doses a day. We're giving an excess of one and a half million doses of vaccine a day. And if anything, that supply is going to increase. So I would encourage you, when you have the opportunity to get a vaccine, do so. Please continue to wear a mask. And don't forget to maintain your distance and wash your hands. Those are simple things, but they could prevent a tragedy in your family. And that's what we as healthcare providers most want. We want to keep you safe. We want to keep your family safe. We want to keep your community safe. And we know how to do that. We can do that right now. Vaccines will add to that and will get us back to normal in time, but only if we all pull together to accomplish this. And we can do it. America can do this and other countries can do it. We just have to accept the inconvenience of distancing and wearing a mask on a temporary basis. Hands, face, face, face. vaccinate. There you go. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Wish you a wonderful week. Thank you. You too. Our thanks today to COVID-19 uh, expert, uh, Dr. Greg Poland, for being with us again to give us our updates. Thanks to you too for being here today. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. And we wish you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org, then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.